if you go and look at a lot of decision-making processes, they end up thinking about an individual actually making mm -hmm. a decision. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is that in almost every context that we work inside of tech as product managers, we're making a decision as a group. And actually, usually the product manager is not the decider, right? The product manager right. is the person who facilitates the decision or forces the decision. Hi, you're listening to episode 156 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. And this is your host, Nels Davis. And that was my guest, Chris Butler, whom we first heard on the podcast in episode 107. So I'm thrilled to have Chris back on the show sharing a bunch of new stuff with us. He is a chaotic good product manager, writer, and speaker. And in much of his work, he focuses on helping product managers operate more effectively and helping teams make better, less biased decisions and build new and innovative products. He has been a product leader at Google, Microsoft, Facebook, other companies, Cognizant when he was last on the show. He's created techniques like empathy mapping for the machine, animistic design mapping, and confusion mapping to create cross-team alignment while building AI products. I first met Chris in a product manager meetup, and then I happened to watch his amazing video on adversarial product management, techniques to help reduce bias and uncertainty, and make productive use of randomization to help teams make more robust and reliable decisions, and that was the topic of his previous appearance on this podcast. Now in this episode, Chris tells us about a lot of new stuff he's working on, why meetings are actually good, and other insights from the Uncertainty Project, a new way to think about strategy, and concrete ways that AI might change our lives and his futurist work on this topic with the Near Future Laboratory. For more information on all these topics, links to connect with Chris, and much more information, check out the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 156. We started our conversation reflecting on time and how strange it has become. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. It's been quite a while since we've last talked. And yeah, it feels like it's been almost no time whatsoever, but yeah, well, great time, to be back on. Thank you. <laughs> time, has, time is so weird nowadays. I guess time was always strange, and then the pandemic just made time even stranger. And now the pandemic is not over, but in the new phase, maybe time will become a wholly different thing. Well, in fact, speaking of time, it was a year ago, apparently, that ChatGPT came out. And yeah. think of all the changes that have happened since then. And we're going to talk a little bit about AI because I know that you have some very interesting ideas and a really interesting project that you're working on. And we'll talk about that. So you have all these fantastic things you work on and you put stuff out on YouTube and you have talks and you go on podcasts. And so I just wanted to ask you, what is the thing that you're most, that you're most focused on right now? And yeah. let's get into that. And then we'll talk about some other things as we go along as well. Yeah, totally. I think the thing that just over the last kind of year and maybe even 18 months, so I did help co-found this project called the Uncertainty Project, which is really a community of people that are thinking a lot about decision-making, strategy, even kind of team dynamics a lot of the time. As if you get meta enough about anything, it ends up being like an organizational problem eventually. But I think as I've started to really contribute a lot to not only the models that are there, right? So things like strategic rehearsal and wargaming or the idea of like randomness and decision-making. We also started to experiment a little bit in the way that we think about how do decisions get made and maybe what are some of the things we can learn from behavioral science and the way that actually people end up learning from each other. And so this is really boiled down to this idea that I think a lot of people end up muddying the way they make decisions because they don't create a specific special kind of phase for discourse around the decision versus the decision-making point itself. 
And usually the way we end up starting with that is deciding how we're going to now decide. And what's really important about that is that there's been lots of research that's shown that all of the cognitive biases that, that people end up as individuals suffering from, right? So if you read like Thinking Fast and Slow is really like a treatise to the fact that individuals are really bad at making decisions or being at least logical, right? And there's like a whole, there's another book I'm reading right now, which is called The Enigma of Reason. And it's really trying to attack that idea that like this idea of being highly logical and using Aristotle style, like logical proofs is probably not a good thing for every human being to understand, right? We still make decisions. We still make good and bad decisions, whether or not we end up building out a full formal pr logical proof about our mm -hmm. decision. Right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that ends up being really important actually is that in those cases where individuals may fail an awful lot of the time in making a better decision, when we're in groups where we're able to discuss something, we're able to argue and look at each other's different points of view as separate from our own, we end up actually flipping the ability to then make usually a bad decision into usually a good decision. And this is in a very official logic game type of setting. Mm -hmm. But I think it really, it changes the way that we should think about why we actually end up having meetings with each other, right? Why we, why we have synchronous discussions and how maybe we use asynchronous discussions to a benefit as well. And so I think that discussion ends up being really important to the eventual decision, but there is a separation. The people that you may involve in the discussion or the discourse around decision could be very different than the person who's the final decision maker. Mm -hmm. And ideally that final decision maker or group of decision makers ends up being very close to the decision, right? Like they have the most response. The idea of a Rossi where there's a difference between like responsible and accountable, that doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense to me. But that idea of a person that is closest to the decision, that's most impacted, that is actually the person that is has the skin in the game for this type of thing, that's the person that should be making that decision. And that's very different than all the different stakeholders or people that may have opinions about what should happen. Sure. And so I think separating those two things out has been I think a really foundational thing for the way I start to think about when we talk about, let's say, product operations and the way that we create meetings and cadences for meetings, mm -hmm. how we end up making decisions inside of teams, how do we set up asynchronous documents that then help have those discussions and help document those discussions, I think end up becoming really important. And so that, that's something I think over the last year, I've really been thinking an awful lot about. I love this. We have this idea that meetings are bad, right? There's yeah. <laughs> We have too many meetings, blah, blah, blah. And what I'm hearing you saying is that, okay, there may be some bad meetings. There's, yes, you know, there absolutely are bad but, meetings. Just be very but, clear. There are but absolutely there are, bad meetings. <laughs> but most of our best decision-making takes yep. place in groups. That's right. So we have to understand that, celebrate it, and right. presumably get better at it. Um, That's right. And in various ways, like you mentioned having decision-making deciding how to decide like the deciding how to yeah. decide what yeah. is our decision making process and right. I, I just read a really interesting article about that that somebody posted on twitter but yeah. i'm just wondering can you give an example of a decision making yeah. process and how that's different from the decision making itself per se yeah i think a really good example is one recently about a year ago i helped set up like a naming committee for internal projects. And engineers are really good at doing a lot of things. Usually creating consistent and understandable naming is not one of them all the time. <laughs> and inside this process though, what we tried to do is that consensus driven decision-making is something that happens a lot inside of Google. And there's a lot of benefits to that, right? Like mm -hmm. we bring everybody along, but it also means that sometimes it takes longer to make a decision than we'd like. And in this particular case, when setting up the naming committee, there were definitely a lot of stakeholders that need to be able to get involved, right? It's not just the idea of a product manager that's in charge of the product. It could be marketing, right? PR, comms, the leadership, 
maybe even legal when it comes mm-hmm. to is this name something that we can we can actually call because of trademark issues or sure. other things like that. And so there's a lot of different types of stakeholders that are involved in this decision-making process. And so in the deciding how to decide, setting up the process up front, it was clear to me that like we could get mired in this idea of everybody's constantly going back and forth about names. But the reality is the person who is running the project should probably be the main stakeholder, like the main decision maker around what is the best name, right? Mm -hmm. But all these other people, they actually should be able to veto any name. And so there's a difference between the idea of approving something, like inside of Google, we call it like looks good to me or LGTM tables are on all of our documents. (laughs) And that's a whole other thing we can talk about, like ghosting on these things and and that type of thing. (laughs) But the opposite is that in this case, we just want to make sure we're not making a bad decision from all these stakeholders standpoint. Right. Right. But besides that, we should be able to move forward with a name that fits within certain guidelines and works for the team itself. Mm-hmm. And so what we ended up creating was a process by which there's a document, a brief, essentially, that's written beforehand. It's not a huge document, but it answers the main questions that come up for this type of thing. It's sent out to everybody at least a week in advance of a meeting that we schedule. Mm-hmm. That meeting is only 30 minutes. And that's a place to have a synchronous like discussion, questions, argument about what is good or bad. And then... Once that meeting is completed, we actually give two days of time for anybody to veto the name that is actually recommended. Okay. And so rather than trying to ask for everybody, do you approve? And this PM having to chase down every single one of these stakeholders to sign off on the document. We just say the only thing we care about right now is like, if you just are so against this name that you are willing to say that you're going to stop the process. And so what that ends up doing is that there's been like one time where there was a veto and they had to come Mm -hmm. back and rework it, but it was like almost immediately we got that feedback, right? Rather than waiting for weeks to be able to lock that thing down. Mm -hmm. So this is a classic case of going from consensus-driven decision-making to what we call consent-driven decision-making. And so it's that you trust the main person that is moving forward the thing. And that the only thing we really want to do now is like, we want to, the only time we will stop the process is when someone is consciously stopping the process rather than just letting it hang out there and drift. So that's an example of deciding how to decide. And this was because we needed to have a group of people making a decision, stakeholders and the person had to make the decision. Again, I think there's lots of different ways. There's a great app by, I think it's Noble is an organizational consulting group. They have an app called the Decider app. And they have eight different kind of decision-making frameworks for groups of people to make decisions. I still think that getting down to one person that is a decision-maker usually is better. But if you have to, there's all these different ways that you can start to say, we'll actually allow for consent or consensus are two big major ways that we end up making decisions. And so that's what I'd say is like, being upfront about it this way means mm-hmm. that people know what to expect in this process. They know when to actually give their feedback. They know how they get involved with the decision or not. And then the parts after that end up being commu- communication and learning in a decision-making process. But I think that's that like discourse versus decision-making point. Those are the things that we need to do a much better job of and actually mm-hmm. separating out in some way. And so you described an example of a particular type of decision that has to be made and a particular yeah. process for that decision. That's right. Is there a generic level of we make decisions in this way, or are there like seven different types of decisions that each yeah. need their own process? How or do you have to customize the process for each type? Or yeah, scale is maybe what I'm. Thinking. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that there's like a meta process here, which is mm-hmm. that generally every decision is broken down to really five kind of key steps as I see it. And there's probably, this is my flavor of it. There's other people that have other ways of thinking about this. And I'm talking about it not from an individual standpoint, right? If you go and look at a lot of decision-making processes, they end up thinking about an individual actually making a decision. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about is that 
in almost every context that we work inside of tech as product managers, we're making a decision as a group. And actually, usually the product manager is not the decider, right? The product manager yeah. is the person who facilitates the decision or forces the decision in some way. Yeah. So usually it's like identification, right? We realize that a decision that we're going to make is going to impact more than just me or our team or something like that, right? We then decide how to decide, which is a threshold to then get into discourse. And that's where we end up having, usually there's a document that's prepared. There's a lot of people to give feedback. You're gathering options, you're refining options. You're maybe drawing a line on certain options that we're just not going to consider right now, right? So there's all that kind of discourse that ends up happening. It could happen through meetings as well. But I think like async is a good place from the standpoint of like, when we look at how divergence and convergence works inside of design thinking, the idea of getting everybody to put down their ideas before you try to make a decision is really powerful because you end up getting more variants, get more angles on the issue, right? Then there's a decision-making point, And then you have to communicate that out to a bunch of different people, not necessarily just the stakeholders that you talked with, but potentially more people. And when I say communicate, it could also include users, right? So you may have to create user documentation or something like that. And then finally, there's the feedback loop, which is how do we now see whether this decision-making process that we used is actually valuable in future versions of this, like did the decision, and I'm not just saying like, we care about the outcome, right? Because what we actually care about is efficacy of the decision-making process. Sometimes the outcome will just not be what we want because of kind of the complexity of the world. And so what we want to give feedback on or understand is over time, the decision-making processes that we're using, are they valuable and usually lead to better outcomes for us or not, right? And so that's what I'd say is I think what we're talking about in the case of the naming committee was really more about the fact that we identified that there was going to be a common process that needed to happen over and over again. And there were a common set of people. There was like a common way that we wanted to do this. And so this is in the realm of Kinevin, which is Dave Snowden's framework for complexity, right? The recent realization I've come to is it's no longer that I used to think about it, that I would find every problem and I would try to slot it into like clear, complicated, complex, or chaotic or bordered. Yeah. I would try to slot problems into those different buckets. But the reality is that actually it depends on what you want to frame it as. And it's more your viewpoint that matters when we're talking hmm. about Kinevin. And so whenever we're taking something that is like a meta process, like I'm talking about for decision-making and we turn it into an official process, we're actually taking a different framing or lens. We're no longer saying we believe this is a complex system that we have to keep on learning every single time what is the right way to do it. And right, right, right. What we're doing is we're saying, I'm actually going to frame the world now as a complicated way. I'm going to say, we are going to consider this a complicated problem, even though it could be still complex, right? There, or there could be maybe complex. components that are complex, right? And by putting the structure around it, you at least separate out the complicated from the complex. Yeah, and just to be... be wrong, right? That's the thing is you could still be wrong, right, but you are for now saying, I'm going yeah. for now, I'm going to just consider this complicated. Right? Yeah. So for listeners, this Kadefin process or this structure, I'll put a link in the yeah. show notes about this, but it's this idea that given situations are either simple, which means they're obvious, complex, yes. which means they they require expertise, but the expert can come up with the right answer, essentially. Com yeah, that's that's complicated. Just be very clear. Yeah, so yeah, clear, that's complicated. clear is like everybody knows how to do it. Complicated is you need experts or specialty process or something like that. Yeah. But if you can come up to the right answer. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then, and then complex is that you have no idea what the right answer is, but it's usually where there's like groups of people being involved. You need to experiment. It's like probe, sense, and respond. Right. It's being like the terminology. And then chaotic is really just you have no idea what's going on. And so you're just going to try everything. You don't really have a handle anything. on it. Yeah. yeah you can right. throw things at the wall and then you maybe can learn something yeah. about it. Chaotic's not bad, right? When we do ideation within a group, for example, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. a chaotic moment. Right. You're actually dipping. And you so want it to be chaotic, like, even. 
That's right. That's right. You want to collect as many ideas as possible. And so he talks a lot about li like liminality with, between these things. And so the idea of whenever I think about product operations or the way that we end up setting up our teams or doing kind of process work is we're constantly moving back and forth between a framing of complicated and complex and back yeah, and forth. Sure. And so like when we see that there's something that has to be repeated over and over again, we then create official processes or bureaucracies to deal with them. But then we also have to sense at a certain point that bureaucracy is no longer serving and we need to go back into the complex framing to be able to understand what's actually going on with this team. But yeah, that's, I think the thing is that to me, it's no longer about this problem is complicated or complex. It's that I am going to take the stance of viewing this as either complicated or complex now, because I think in the end, like I could also, when I join a team, I could just think of this like chaotic, right? Like when mm -hmm. I first join a team, I have no idea what no to do. No idea what's happening here. There are cultures and rules and processes and networks of people and stuff like that. But I view it as a, a, a chaotic, like, place. And so I try a bunch of things. And this is where like Von Tan talking about like negotiated joining, which is that you try something and see if it works. And if so, it becomes part of your job profile. And so I think that PMs do this an awful lot when they're joining a new team, because like in one team, I may have been writing like acceptance criteria and tasks. And the other one, they don't even want me in the task system. And so it's different in every single role. And so I think that's why it's more just like how there's different tools that you can use in each of those domains. And it depends on what your hypothesis is about the best framing at that moment. And that changing and viewing different domains or different types of domain framings, I think is maybe a power of a product manager, right? Is like the idea of reframing, not only from the standpoint of zooming in and zooming out, but also including other pieces or removing other pieces mm -hmm. to then mm -hmm. focus, I think ends up being that product manager skill. That you're constantly like cycling through framings, basically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's an interesting kind of, maybe even I like to think of things, or I often call things fractal, right? Yeah. Where a... a, a particular situation has complexity, has simplicity, maybe has a version of it from above that's simple, Yep. but within it, it's building a new product, right? And yeah, from one right. perspective, that's a simple process. Yeah. Find the problem, design and create a solution, take it to market, right? That's my simple sure. high level model. But each of those has complexity within, and that's each right. of those has, com ha has complicatedness and complexity, that's right? That's right? right. Because you don't know what that problem is yet. You don't know whether it's worth right. solving. And you cannot know from the outset without probe, right. sense, and respond. That's right. Yeah, right. and that's why I think complex is so interesting is it's usually the default for whenever there's groups of people that you need to work with. Right. And as we start to think about the idea of teaming of different people and the way that people work together, right? We need to take more of a complex frame usually because we don't know for this set of people, for yeah. this culture, for this particular team's context and history, there's going to be different things that will work. And I actually read a, it was an article about the Overton window as applied to like end users and what is their Overton window for understanding the way to do things. Yeah. I would say it's like akin to adjacent possible, which comes from, again, kind of complexity work and evolutionary biology work. But I think there's something interesting from the standpoint of an Overton window for the team and what it's willing to accept as far as process change. Right. And right. so can you, like, can you describe what an Overton window yeah, is? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so the Overton window is more of a political kind of model from the standpoint of that between the left and the right, there's some window of where there are acceptable political theories or programs, things like that. And behavior, so you can, even. yeah, behavior, whatever that is, it, it uses left and right because of the idea of political spectrums and everything like that. And you can change or move the Overton window as you start talking about things become normalized. And then that means that the Overton window now covers that. Right. And so there's this like discussion about fight between left and right about like, how do you expand the Overton window in your direction and diminish the window in the other direction? So you get policies that are close to your own, for example. Yeah. 
I think what's interesting in the world of product and product ops and like the way we build teams is that there's a range of acceptable kind of things that happen within a culture. And so that, that's something that inside of Google, I found it's really hard in some teams to get regular retrospectives to happen. Hmm. And it's because there's a lot of very smart people here. They do really great work. And so there's almost like a blindness sometimes to being that kind of like maintenance work. And especially in your, if you're in a team that is like being very reactive or working really hard on a lot of stuff, people don't think about those other things. And so that's outside of this Overton window of acceptability within the team is we don't need this type of thing. And so I've just been starting to think about like when we, whenever we join teams, whenever we start to think about teams, trying to define what are the things that are acceptable or not inside this culture right now. Sure. And then how do you do the job to actually expand that to allow for change and transformation, honestly, right? Because every team is in a constant state of transformation. It's just, we, we think of it, we think of transformation usually as like really large, big transforma transformative like events because of some type of crisis. And there's real crises like when ChatGPT became incredibly popular, right? That was a big change for Google to have to react to. There's also manufactured crises, which is like reorgs, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so those things are where we need to, I think like from my standpoint, I think this idea of understanding and adjusting the Overton window as a concept ends up being very interesting to me because that means that we're doing more like iterative change. And we assume that actually we're not going to make humongous change in our group, but we're going to make lots of small tweaks until we get to the point. And this again, from a complex kind of framing that doing this actually helps us longer term because we're going to adjust and move into a space that will stick longer rather than trying to force a big process on the team in some way. Anyways, yeah, exactly. Love that. Good. And going up a level. So this is all yeah. about decision-making and deciding how to decide. Then let's talk about the uncertainty project a little bit more. So this is a one component yeah. of what you're working on there. What, yeah. what else is going on in the uncertainty project? Yeah. So I would say like some of the things that I've started to really explore that are more at the strategy level is a concept that I've started to call 360 strategy. And so I did a talk at industry this year about that, but it, what it really tries to do is talk about the fact that when we're building a strategy for an organization, it ends up being a, almost like a lattice work or a network of concepts. And, and so I've started to look at it. Of course, I used to be a consultant, so everything gets boiled down to a two by two usually, <laughs> but if we want to describe this two by two, it ends up being that things above our line are things that we're definitely doing. And the higher up that we get above this line, the more important or like the re th these concepts end up being mm -hmm. below mm -hmm. the line are things that we're not going to do and things that we would be like the opposite of what we're trying to do. And then to the left and right, if we're talking about like the positive on the right-hand side, it's really what are things that are highly speculative or unknown? And so this is something that was really inspired by assumption mapping by David J. Bland. And then the left side are things that we already know about, right? And so in these quadrants, like the upper right-hand quadrant ends up being like very aspirational concepts that we think are really important, but we don't know how to measure them yet. They're bets and things like that. Mm -hmm. In parallel, below the line, you should have what I'll call bizarro strategies, which end up being like your competitor would choose this, but you're consciously not choosing this. Okay. So you end up having relationship between the things you're doing and the things you're definitely not doing that are mm -hmm. aspirational. And then on the other side, you end up having, here's the strategies that we know are working. We have KPIs around them. We're tracking them in OKRs. There's, like, there's metrics that we know that this is working and we're going to continue to optimize and tweak this type of thing. And then there's like things below that in the bottom left, which are like failures that we know are not working and we should avoid because we can track them, right? right. And, and so you end up creating, and this is something through the uncertainty project, been talking a lot about with the other co-founders is about like, how do we start to like visualize strategy as a graph, right? And then there's movement inside of these things. So like whenever we create something that's new and aspirational, we should try to think about what is the opposite of that that we're not going to do. 
Mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so we're creating a yes and no, which is to me very important for strategic thinking. And then as things go from aspirational to like more kind of known, we should be getting metrics, right? We should start getting like actually more quantitative understanding of what is going on there. Mm -hmm. And if you end up having then also a imbalance about where things are in this graph, if you have everything in the known territory, that means you're not experimenting enough. But if you have everything in the experimental territory or the aspirational one, it means that you're not a very well-formed business yet. And so startups versus very large companies, but there's like interesting things I think we start to be able to do with this like visualness of the graph and the way that they end up interrelating to each other. So there's a lot of other models that are out there like Wardley mapping, which is about value chain and evolution of technology. Like I said, assumption mapping when it comes to how do we understand what are assumptions that are important, but maybe not proven yet. I think there's a lot of things from that. This is like another way to think about that framing of strategy. And so yeah. I guess what I'm trying to do is create a more visual version of this because Inside of strategy, most of the time when it ends up getting written inside of the organizations I've been part of, it's usually a very large document that talks right, about like right. market conditions, competitive, there's maybe like headwinds in, or tailwinds internally that are there. And then we talk about what are the things we're going to do. So it's really more a plan. I've tried to get people to talk more about like even overstatements, which is like we will choose this type of thing even over this other type of thing. And if we have three or four of those, it actually creates a very complex model for decision-making that you can then use in your day-to-day -to, -day right. to make a decision. And so this is, I think, a way to try to visualize strategy in a way that is conceptual still. It's very experimental, but it's something that I've just been like, there's been some people internal to Google that have been experimenting with it within their teams. Mm -hmm. I've been getting some people externally to try it out as well, but it's this idea of how do we do this and include it and maybe start to now link it to the way that we end up tracking the work that we're doing, the metrics that we collect. And so that, that's what I'd say is like dot work is like an early startup that's focused on this type of thing. Yeah. I'd say double loop is another one. There's a bunch of people that are trying to link this kind of higher level strategy with data. Even Amplitude, I think, tries to do stuff like this, right? Mm -hmm. And John Culler's work around North Star metrics, I think is getting at this type of thing as well. So anyways, yeah. I, I just mentioned all these people because all the things I do is not in a vacuum, right? Like mm -hmm. it's very inspired by all this stuff. The difference here is the conceptualization of strategy in a visual way is what we're trying to do. Yeah, so it sounds great. I should get Cutler on the podcast. I've always meant to do that. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he's such an interesting person and has Absolutely. so many amazing ideas. I, I love this idea because, as you say, most strategies are really just plans. Yeah. And exactly. that's not a strategy, right? The strategy no, is, not. it's like your decision make, deciding how to decide. Yeah. A strategy should be, this is how we're going to decide. When this things is. happen, the, the strategy tells us what how we're going to figure out what to do it doesn't tell us yeah. what we're going to do and it doesn't predict what's going to happen it tells us here's how we decide when this thing happens and there's something about assumptions in here too that i'm still thinking about is like the things that are if we're talking about like that 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 kind of two by two the things that are on the middle of the line that mm -hmm. are maybe not important enough for us to write in our strategy document and for us to memorize and to be a broken record around but there's lots of assumptions that are yeah, both sure. like aspirational as well as well-formed that if one of those were to break randomly, yeah. we should actually then have a discussion. And this is where there's another post on the Uncertainty Project about like Kairos versus Kronos time. Kronos time is, is very much like calendar time. So we do planning every month or quarterly or yearly. We have a cycle by which we rethink our strategic planning on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Kairos time ends up being like a big thing happens and our assumptions are broken and we need to now think about strategy again. So right. a big example of that was when I was at Facebook Reality Labs working on portal device. I joined in January and then in March, COVID happened. 
right, in 2020. <laughs> right, yeah. And so there were a bunch of things that we were doing that were more about like, getting people out into the world on Portal, and those things were no longer valid, right? Like people wanted to stay inside. But what was really valid was that people wanted to connect with each other that they mm -hmm. were not able to see in person anymore. Right. And so all of our plans, all of the OKRs, all of the strategy had to go out the window and we had to rethink about it at that moment. And so I think this is what I'm talking about when we talk about these assumptions being broken. I think there's like some interesting tools through like large language models and the way that they are able to like summarize tech uh, content nowadays. I think we're getting closer to being able to say that just based on news stories and everything, are there assumptions that we are saying are there? And if we detect that suddenly there's a change in the way those assumptions are working, we should get a notification about right. that type, now have that discussion. And we can ignore it, but I think there's gonna be some really interesting tools that start to come out because of this kind of generative AI, large language model capability around summarization. I think we start to get into this realm of being able to do a better job of monitoring and tracking that type of stuff. That's beyond just like Google alerts, right? Which is what we would use a lot of the time for this type of yeah. So yeah. I, that's a great transition into another thing that we discussed, you, would, yeah. you have some opinion about, which is AI. So. Yeah. yeah, obviously the big thing we mentioned ChatGPT already, though, which is for now. We'll see. That... We'll see if it sticks around. Sure. Who was it? Rich Miranoff made a post a couple days ago yeah. where he said, yeah. basically, we're on the hype part of the hype curve and right. there's going to be a crash and burn. And we all know it, many of us have been through many of those before. And so we'll see what happens. But you had some interesting ideas about whatever the form it eventually takes, some ways that it will be helping us and yeah. an interesting project that you're working on related to that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I keep on thinking a lot about like, how do people team with each other? And right now, like people end up using an awful lot of different types of tools that some of which include machine learning. Like for example, if you use something like Google docs, there's a lot of stuff around spell checking and grammar right. that is like basically machine learning. Right. But to push it even further. So with things like duet that are starting to be launched by Google docs, this idea of the blank page problem, right. Ends up being a one-on-one -on -one type of thing where I don't know what to write. I have an idea of what I want to get started on, but I want to get help in like breaking the seal on writing this thing. Mm -hmm. I think there's the next step of this, and this is something that when I was back at like philosophy, which was a kind of a design consultancy, and I did a lot around the exploration of human computer interface, HCI stuff for AI and machine learning five years ago, six years ago, we started talking a lot about this idea of teaming between human beings and agents in a shared channel. And the reason why that starts to be interesting is that there are lots of things that are single use tools that will be valuable for people to use that will be machine learning. Some of which will be so in the background, like spell check, right? That we won't even notice it. There'll be things that would be more active, like the idea of the duet and the kind of generation of imagery, things like that. But then what we start to starts to happen when we start to turn these things into agents that help everybody say within a chat area. And so what types of things or agents do we want to have in that context that will help us do a better job? And so it could be things like when people start to consider, do we have data on this? The ability to like go off and just try to find the data automatically right. could be a real value, right? Or starting to pull a bunch of information or search a bunch of docs across the entire system and bring back the things that are really interesting. Those are all really important and possible things that an agent could do in this. Summarize the key um, points of the literature right. kind of thing. Yeah. And right now it comes down to transcription of meetings and action item kind of distillation and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I think yeah. we're going even further. Like I, I've been running some workshops where we do ideation type of stuff. And so if we could have a, a equivalent of a bard or some, something like that, adding in information as we're doing this as another person or yeah. asking additional pro provocative questions, I think that's where we start to get what's really valuable. Or doing a sketch yeah. note. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Doing an automatic sketch note. That'd be really cool. So 
I think there's there's kind of something in between tools and agents that we're talking about sure. that starts to become in these group settings. I think one that was more of a thought piece I wrote on Medium was about this idea of what if we embedded large language models inside of each home device that you have? And what would that mean? So there's things like animism, which is this idea that every object is what it should be. And so a lamp is not necessarily going to sing or talk to you, but maybe it can blink and it can change the lights. And so what is a lamp supposed to be like? And so once you start to do that, you start to feel that like in, inside your household, all these technologies could also then chat with each other. Because one of the biggest problems in home automation is that whenever you try to create rules or routines, there's always exceptions. And those exceptions become really hard to manage. I, I set up Christmas lights. And so when to turn it on and off and all that type of stuff is really interesting. Because I, I want it to be like when someone's in the room, but also between these hours and all that type of stuff. And it becomes right. really complex to yeah. build an interface for that. But if I can join or go into the house chat of all the different devices and just say, hey, I'm going to be away. I want you to do this with human language. All the different devices can then potentially respond in a way that I would also understand about the way they understand or would encode those types of special cases. So for example, whenever I walk into a room, I want the light to turn on, right? But then I do that and there's a baby sleeping in the room. That's not the right thing to do, right? And so then I have to say what happened there and the lamp would say, you walked in the room and so I turn on the light and it's not if some, someone or some baby is sleeping there. They can, yeah. okay, I will not do that. And so you end up creating like all these really interesting things where devices can actually coordinate with each other in a way that we can then understand. That yeah. is, still potentially through APIs, but in a way that is human understandable. And so anyways, that's what I'm saying is I think that's a really interesting example. And I do a prototype of what that chat would look like and everything. But I think longer term teaming humans and machine learning agents, I think there's a big question about whether we want them to be agents or tools, but that's a very interesting area of study right now. So um, you have this design fiction project that you're working on. Yeah. And I know we only have a few minutes. Can you yeah, sure. describe what a design fiction yeah. is and then the project? And then we'll close out. Yeah, that's great. So a design fiction is really this concept that we jump into this like rickety old time machine, go to the future somewhere. And so if I'm working on a project, that's about what is the employee manual of 10, 20 years in the future. So if I took this rickety old time machine and I like jumped into the future Google offices or something like that, and I see someone's desk, I can't stay very long. So I grab something off their desk which is a physical object or a thing, or maybe even an app, right? Or like a, a tablet with an app on it. Mm -hmm. I come back in time and I look at it and it's this kind of, they call it a diegetic prototype, but it's really like an object or a thing that is meant to create a discussion about what are our values today in comparison to the values of the future? What would we, is this a good or a bad thing, right? Is this something we'd want to have? And so an example of this is I wrote like an organizational design fiction because I started thinking about, so it was like a press release that was coming from a hypothetical future Shopify where there's Neuralink. And basically what they did is Shopify is known for canceling all their meetings at the beginning of the year, very anti-meeting type of group. But what if Neuralink had a program by which it would make you physically feel bad if you tried to join a meeting that was not going to be of high value to you? <laughs> and so like that asks a lot of interesting questions, which is, should we allow organizations to enforce that type of thing? Is it up to the organization mm -hmm. or you to decide mm -hmm. whether something's worthwhile? Mm -hmm. Is there something about hacking the way that we actually understand ourselves and our feelings and emotions that's valuable or good? Is there such a thing as a bad meeting, right? And so it asks all those questions, but through this idea of a press release, and I did it where it was like a press release in progress. So they're like a bunch of questions by the PR person asking, is this the right way to say this? Things like that. I think there's something really interesting inside this employee manual design fiction I'm working on as a side project. There's a lot of questions about agents 
and even the idea of digital twins, because there's a spectrum inside of every organization, which is, I believe I'm a special little snowflake because I am who I am. I live an embodied experience. I can only see my point of view. So I feel like I'm special, right? Yeah. But everything the organization does is to try to standardize and make me replaceable. And that includes <laughs> interviewing processes, role profiles, promotion process, reviews, the way the tools that I have to use, like Everything is about trying to make me replaceable. And so I think that's the thing that we're now talking about with this particular prototype is like, what is the spectrum of kind of individuality to replaceability, especially once something can look at all of my emails and the way that I've made decisions in the past and then make decisions in my place while I'm on vacation. Right. Yeah. Right. Is, does that make me fully replaceable or not? And yeah. so I think things around decision-making are also interesting too. Can are these systems actually making decisions or are they just automations and that I'm the decision maker that put this automation in place? And so yeah. there's a lot of really interesting questions that come up from that. So that's the project I'm working on right now with the Near Future Laboratory, which is a group that really originated this concept around design fiction. Right, right. So is that Near Future Laboratory in yeah. this project, is it public, publicly accessible? Can people watch it or so is it more of a... It's curated, yeah. though, right? It is a little bit curated. They do, if you go to one of the seminars or you buy one of the books, you get invited to the Discord. Mm -hmm. It's more of a co-op, right? Like, right. I I basically recommended this project. And so then Julian was like, sure, why don't you just be the showrunner for okay. it? And so there's a lot of, like, interesting kind of, like, collaborative and cooperative work that happens inside of this. But I am going to start, like, I, I just did a workshop this week with a, a meeting innovation community where they're all focused on the way meetings work. And we use design fiction to try to design what would be meetings of the future mm -hmm. in some way. And so I do a bunch of open things like that. And then, yeah, but I, again, if people are interested in this type of thing, they want to contribute to a project like this. I think I just got accepted for a talk at Product World this next year about product manager fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I would argue is every document we write is fiction. Right. And so the question is like, how do we steal from like all of the tools of like world building, sci-fi, all that type of stuff to write better fiction that's actually interesting. And so yeah. I think if people are interested in that, please just reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to include you in the project as well. But it's again, it's like just a kind of a cooperative project. Right Fantastic. Now. So I will put links to all of these right. things, including the, the Uncertainty Project yeah. and other and obviously the LinkedIn connections. Cool. Chris, I know you have to jump. Yeah. Yeah, this thank you. No, thank you for having awesome. me here. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I don't even need to do any editing for this episode, <laughs> practically. It's been so good. So great. We'll do it again. A year, 18 months. I'm sure you'll have <laughs> another great. dozen things to talk about. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. And again, please do connect with me on LinkedIn if these concepts are interesting. And then, yeah, please check out the Uncertainty Project and just subscribe to that newsletter. I think we just surpassed like a thousand subscribers like a month or two ago. And so that's where we do a lot of our thinking about decision-making and strategy. Well, as usual... A brain full of new ideas and concepts from Chris Butler. It happens when he comes on the podcast. For more information on all the things Chris mentioned, the Uncertainty Project, the Near Future Institute, his 360 strategy model, some of his videos on YouTube, and how to connect with Chris, please visit the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 156. You can also leave a comment there, subscribe to the podcast, and do all the things. I hope you found Chris just as fascinating as I always do. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.